welcome to Pod Culture Oz, an Australian pop culture podcast about genre fiction. We've had a bit of a production break, but now we're very excited to be with you again for our Halloween special. I'm your host, Philippa, and this episode I'm joined by my co-host, Dave. Impaler, I have no equal. And once again, we're joined by our friend, Fred. Welcome back to Pod Culture Oz, Fred. Hi, everybody. How are you going? So as it's a Halloween special, we thought we'd turn, and, and previous Halloween specials, we've done zombies and ghosts. This time we're going to do vampires and I'm going to put out a thesis and then we're going to discuss it. I'm going to start off by saying vampire horror stories are so last millennium. Regular listeners will know I'm not a huge fan of the horror genre generally. I don't mind what's called paranormal fiction, which is a contemporary setting with magical or other types of fantastical creatures. Often they're sort of, you know, intrigue detective stories or romance or crossover of all three. So that's kind of fun for me in terms of genre. But it may not be a surprise that I was recently watching a paranormal TV show, one based on a book series I have previously read called Midnight Texas. And I had a bit of a realization, vampires aren't scary anymore. And the more I thought about it, the more I was not really able to think of any scary vampire tropes for quite a long time. And I'm thinking probably about the last 20 years. So I'm going to throw this out for discussion. Vampires as a horror trope are so last millennium. And as a bit of background, vampires and blood-sucking creatures have been part of folklore tales for centuries, even millennia, uh, in pretty much every culture. I did a quick you know, squares on Wikipedia and like they go back to Babylonian goddess Lamashtu, Lami is in Greece, Albanian Striga and the Slavic Striga, which I think I pronounce pretty much the same way, but I, I don't speak either of those languages. And there was revenants in medieval England and Old Norse Draga. These were all tales of supernatural beings that consumed the blood or flesh of the living to extend their own lives. But while they might have some cunning or powers, for the most part, they were often mindless creatures, but something to be feared. In the 1700s, there was a frenzy of vampires sightings in Eastern Europe, which I hadn't known about, but this is pretty fascinating, uh, with frequent stakings and grave diggings to identify and kill potential revenants. Even government officials engaged in the hunting and staking of vampires. This is despite this age being called the Age of Enlightenment, during which most folkloric legends were quelled. But the belief in vampires increased dramatically, resulting in mass hysteria throughout most of Europe. And I've got thoughts on that, so we can pick that up a bit later. It was in the 19th century that the rise of what we see as the modern vampire occurred. So John Polidori, who was an associate of Byron's, wrote a story called Vampire with a Y, and actually Byron published under his name, but it was later um, revealed to be uh, Polidori. There was the Penny Dreadful serials about Varney the Vampire, and of course Bram Stoker's Dracula, which came out in the 1890s. This is when the now familiar traits appeared, fangs, vulnerability to sunlight, clothing with a high collar, and immortality through drinking blood. From the 1920s onwards, vampires became creatures of horror on the screen. Max Schreck famously was Count Orlok in the Nosferatu and Bela Lugosius Dracula, and they were the start of long cinema tradition of horrifying vampires. As vampires became creatures in B-grade schlock horror with movies like the Hammer Horror Dracula series, and they became a staple of the horror genre. But in the late 80s and early 90s, vampires started to change. While The Lost Boy showed vampires who were cool and edgy, Anne Rice made her vampires romantic heroes or anti-heroes with her point of view characters in Interview with a Vampire and Lestat. Francis Ford Coppola did a high drama production of Dracula with an all-star cast, leaving the schlock behind. And in that movie, Gary Oldman played Dracula and had an elevated perspective. So he wasn't a full point of view character, but he certainly had more point of view than 
Dracula had in previous productions. And of course, there was Vampire the Masquerade, the role-playing game, which introduced angsty vampire protagonists to gamers, which became a short-lived terrible TV show called Kindred the Embrace. The new millennium saw Twilight with sparkly vampires as teen romance heroes, and this led to a spate of similar stories, mostly aimed at the young adult market. There was also a boom in paranormal romance with vampire heroes and heroines, with the TV series True Blood being a prime example. While they might be brooding or have a momentary flare-up with fangs, by definition, these characters could not be evil or scary. In our last Halloween episode, Dave said that horror is a pretty broad term that covers a ton of subgenres, but one of its goals is to scare the audience through a combination of imagery and theme. And for a story to fit within a genre, it would need to meet a certain maximum threshold of that genre's defining features. Therefore, it's my claim that modern vampire stories, which are teen and romance oriented, fail in meeting at this minimum threshold. There may be the occasional jump scare, but by changing the vampire from an antagonist to a protagonist, the horror has largely been removed. So vampires have been defanged. What do you think? I've got thoughts, but um, I'd actually like to to hear from Fred first. Oh wow! Put on the spot. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the interesting thing for me. I mean, this, I thought there was an interesting thought that you had, Philippa. Definitely made me think. Oh, you know, what kind of uh, vampire fiction have I engaged with? You know, I've read, you know, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I read all the, you know, Vampire Chronicles things in the nineties. And, you know, I enjoyed that line of kind of fiction, but I have not really had much, I don't know, um, interest or kind of really found much to engage, uh, engage my kind of interest for years, really. Um, definitely the sort of Twilight era teen oriented stuff has not, did not really interest me and seemed, yeah, to be primarily romance rather than anything else. I really, I did enjoy Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the TV series. And that was probably the last kind of, yeah, vampire fiction I really probably engaged with as a, as a fan. So yeah. And, and that very much seemed to follow that uh, sense of lots of protagonist vampires that, yeah, they're brooding, they've got a dark side, but they're not, and they have, yeah, kind of scary moments, but they're kind of like the uh, bad boy boyfriend rather than like a true, an existential kind of horror, something that, you know, you know puts you in fear of your life uh, kind of constantly. And they, they kind of, yeah, shade through heel turns or good days, but, yeah, they're not really uh, like a real antagonist or something that is uh, constantly threatening the characters in like that classic horror sense. Yeah, um, they, I guess, modern vampires are romance era vampires. They're point of view characters, right? And they're, I, th- I think their powers have also been reduced, right? Both uh, the the, te- the powers that they are granted to terrify us, but also their their weaknesses as well. And I think honestly that they that vampires have probably taken on sort of a simply a, a way of exploring ourselves as a template over humanity rather than some sort of an antagonist. I, I think that's correct, and I that's that's part of what I. I think they're not scary anymore. You might have a, a a scary moment or a jump scare if if someone's you know has fangs out, but they're no longer a horror trope in the same way they used to be. No, exactly, and it's because they're like the fact that it's an eternal person drinking blood is the only thing that carries across uh, when the vampire crosses from antagonist to protagonist. That's interesting you say that because the show that I was watching that triggered this, uh, Midnight Texas, the vampire was a 
psychic vampire. That's how you knew he was good. He had blue, bright blue eyes and that was a sign that he didn't drink blood and he could hold someone or touch someone and he did this to his friends and he would drain them of emotion and he did that instead of feeding on blood. And, of course, there was a point where other vampires turned up and, and or fed him silver nitrate or something and he didn't need to feed on blood and that's when that was the episode where he was the bad guy temporarily until it wore off. But, you know, that whole being an emotional psychic vampire was his way of not having to drink off blood from his friends, which is terrible. Like, I, I, that's one of the reasons I've never liked vampires as a playable character or a protagonist because they're parasites. And uh, I mentioned earlier the, the 17th century, scare of vampirism, uh, I believe, and I've, I've read this theory, although I, I couldn't, I didn't have time to look it up. I believe it was tied to tuberculosis. People definitely were the, um, definitely all the victims of the vampires, like the female victims of vampires, were very much portrayed in a way that was tuberculoric. Yes, like they were pale. Um, you know, they'd be, they might have, they'd be you know, kind of, they might have blood at their mouth. They're there was some, yeah, that there was like a, and they were actually at the time that kind of a, a tuberculoric woman kind of was perceived as particularly attractive as well, I think. Um, uh, in the 19th the century within, um, I guess, upper class society, yes. Uh, in 17th century, I don't know because there are different perceptions then, but, but yes. Oh, yeah. Um, yes, sir. I'm thinking here about, yeah, like. Um, Camilla and. And I think. That's, um, that's definitely how Lucy. Kind of ironic time as well. Yeah, so. Lu- that's how Lucy Westenra is uh, is presented in Dracula. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the fact that she's got the red hair and the pale skin and she just gets paler and paler, but her hair stays red and it's a blood red. That's very, you know, deliberate. And in the movie, they call her Lucy Weston, but in the book, she's Weston Ra, which is um, sun god, you know. Yeah. She can't go in the sun, <laughs> which is funny. The light of the West or something, yeah. I think um, uh, Mina Harker says. I So I think when, when we did our, our zombie episode, we actually talked um, about about how the function of this trope changes over time and it reflects social anxieties of the day. So I can definitely see how in the 17th century um, when tuberculosis was a serious concern, is an invisible uh, killer. You, you can see how project like that, that anxiety would tra- would um, could be projected in literature uh, and in hysteria as uh, people who, who had passed but could continue to affect the living by, by stealing their lives. Yeah, exactly. Particularly if someone had passed on the virus I think it's a virus, um, before dying. And then so they were gone, but someone else in the household then starts exhibiting the same traits. It's like, well, they may have come back from the dead to do that. And, of course, you had all these legends, as I mentioned, all around, not just Europe but everywhere, about bloodsuckers or flesh eaters. So that's the the folklore that they're drawing on. I mean. I think it was interesting that you pointed out that that your history highlighted that was it was in Eastern Europe that, that this phase craze uh this mass hysteria was really focused certainly reading dracula and watching dracula you definitely get that sense that out here in you know in western europe in england where where we're enlightened and scientific these these things are just folktales we don't uh jonathan harker definitely feels it seems quite incredulous until he experiences dracula and 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 his harem as he you know goes all the way deep into transylvania but there is a, a line of 
not the vampire being particularly English. Like that is the big change from in Polidori's The Vampire is that his vampire is an English lord or an English aristocrat kind of presented and, and becomes a high society figure and is charming and a lady killer and, you know, is really a bit of a caricature of, of Byron himself. Yes. And, and then there's that stream of English actors and performers playing vampires like uh, throughout as well. Yeah, like Vani the Vampire is one of the Penny Dreadfuls, ran for like a couple of decades. So for like literally one cent, people could get the next instalment of the vampire serial running around London and he was in the slums of London and he had a gang of vampires. So I'm curious, Penny Dreadful doesn't sound like the the form that would uh, be taken as horror? It sounds a bit too pulpy for, for like a scary story. Um, I think at the time it was everything. So it was a serial. Sure, I understand that. Aimed at the masses. But they were scary because Varney the Vampire was not a nice character and he killed people and he drank blood, which, you know. Sure. I guess I haven't read it. I just um, one, one thing that I've found with serials is that it's hard for them to hold horror for too long. Um, we found this when we were watching the Scream series on Netflix. I, but I guess in terms of the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s when it was being published, different world. That's all I can assume. And a lot of people couldn't read, so they were being having the stories read to them and I guess I guess where I'm going with this is that the unknown is for me the the scariest thing. Things you don't understand, things you can't see the whole shape of, that is terrifying. If you get to know a character for too long, they cease to be scary. They do horrible things, but you can't be scared the more you know something. And I think that this is actually important. One of the reasons that vampires aren't scary is we understand what drives them. We understand how to describe them, what their rules are and what holds them at bay. How do you think that contrasts with like zombie fiction? Um, and they you know, seem to be. Uh- Zombies are relentless and they will uh, they spread and outpace humanity. But are they? See, I don't think zombies are particularly horrific either. They're monsters, but they don't scare me. Again, I understand they're like broadly, one understands the rules. And, you know, you might not win the 28 day later, you know, super fast zombie. That's really, that is, that is scary, but it's fully understood. And like short of a couple of jump scares, those films aren't actually particularly horrific. Sorry, they're not horror, at least, but the way mm-hmm. I experience them. I think there's an element of scientific inquiry that's always there's like in terms of the the fiction that starts with Polidori and going back to then those 1700s things there really is an element of enlightenment inquiry that goes on Mm. as well they don't just take it as you know it's not just folklore in the way that in that they're you know they're they're scary boogeymen or they're they're kind of stories to scare children Mm. like even from the start there's a real sense of an inquiry as well about investigating well what are these things let's do some studies let's go and you know examine some graves let's gather well that's because they were rare and solitary and and they had to be hidden because they had their vulnerabilities whereas a modern vampire might be out and about and yeah i think that it definitely i think fred's right it definitely underpins the the 19th century stuff it's there in dracula particularly with van helsing who's actually a physician and the other doctor was it jack yeah, Jack. Uh, I think that there is something there that we, we have 
always been inquiring specifically into vampires and what drives them. I'm just going to, I'll come back to that, but just wanted to, while I think of it, Fred mentioned Buffy, which was on my list. It's on my list twice because it's on my list as a movie and a TV show. Mm. And I think there's quite a different tone. I mean, the movie is kind of fun and yeah, but Buffy the movie, the vampires are still scary and they're still an enemy. Mm. And once you have a TV show with a weekly story and a continuing cast, they can't be scary anymore. This is what I was getting at with um, with Varney. It's, it's an ongoing story. They're a character. You, yeah, they're not scary. Particularly once you get to Spike and he's essentially a protagonist. Well, so is Angel. Yeah. And Angel in the first series is a protagonist right, right from the start. Yeah. In, in more of a Twilight sense, right? He's tortured, but he doesn't. You know, want to attack mm-hmm. people, and he, you know, he has a soul, or or if I recall. Yeah, most of the time he does. They, they have those like the forehead growth where they don't have a soul. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to Buffy. The movie came out early '90s, and the TV show started late '90s. So that difference is part of that transition, I think. And the '90s were like a powerhouse of, of vampire stuff. There was like there was the Dracula movie. Mm. There was the Interview with the Vampire. Interview the Vampire is a very interesting movie, which I didn't enjoy that much, but I do have, um, I was reading up on it because there was some genuinely scary stuff, but for me, it was mostly about Claudia, the child vampire, because at the point where she is executed, she's like a couple hundred years old as a a child that's never going to grow up. And she has the physicality of a child and to some extent, the understanding of a child, but the experiences which we would normally associate with an adult. And she's frustrated by the trappings of being a child vampire. And that's why they are not supposed to turn children into vampires, except that she was dying anyway. And Lestat, being a jerk, decided he'd do it to like pin Louis down because he knew Louis would look after her. But once, once Claudia started acting out and like creating vampires of her own, they, they couldn't keep her around anymore because she didn't understand the ramifications of what she was doing. And I just thought Claudia is actually the, probably the most tragic, but also the most terrible character in that movie. And uh, the book, uh, the book was terrible. It was just Louis whining for like hundreds of pages. But the other interesting thing about the book, which I think they cut out of the movie, was at some point Louis travelled around Europe to see if he could meet other vampires mm. when he had a falling out with Lestat, and all he found was mindless creatures of folklore. There were no other intelligent vampires. It's just him and Lestat. And Marius, <laughs> what a sad world! But but that that then goes back to the whole folklore thing. So I thought that was really interesting. Mm. I think there's a something about the '90s that you know that that Gen X who are cynical. What's the point anyway? And um, kind of that, generation the bomb having hovering over us in our childhood. Yeah, that Cold there was a real tea. sense that then that that vampire fiction really fit in with um, protagonists who were living you know, in kind of a hopeless situation. I think that's what that's what Louis was like in that first book and that was the kind of breakout book. Um, yeah, but that was actually written in 1978, which I found interesting. It was. But then it had that real, yes, it, it was a genuine resurgence during that. There definitely was. I was reading yeah. the history of it and it was like yes. it was really popular as a novel but no – a Hollywood movie would touch it because of the homoeroticism and the blood drinking and everything mm. and it took to, took to the 90s to make it into a movie and finally the rights were had been floating around for like 15 years and someone said, oh, I'm going to do it and I'm going to put Tom Cruise as the stat and Anne Rice was, you know, famously vocal about not wanting him and then she said, oh, no, it was the right decision. So that was interesting. One, interesting. one of my favourite texts of the 90s is Anna Dracula actually yeah. um, where like in some ways, you know, the, the vampires, they're, they're scary 
but not in a horror way because they're actually part of the setting. They're essentially an occupying force overlaid over over England and the world, born out of Dracula's union with Queen Victoria. Yes, the uh, Carpathians in the court. It's um really interesting. The first novel I quote, uh, Kim Newman, is Kim it? Newman, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed the first book. The second one was The Bloody Red Baron and his vampiric forces in World War One. Didn't enjoy that so much. That was an interesting concept, but I don't think the story pulled off. And it was basically the Germans, the Hun, were modifying people through vampiric blood to fly. And it was literally, they were the fighters, pilots. They were the fighter craft themselves as vampires. So kind of human bat, vampire kind of like bats, crossovers, um, and with guns attached to their arms and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not enjoying this. The so first was that was, series, would you say that series was horror? Uh, Dave, or was it one, just like the first one? Definitely was special powers. Yeah, because yeah. the, the first one, I think so too, because it actually for, acts as a sequel to Dracula. Yeah, um, and you know, it's what if Jonathan Harker failed? Yeah. Which and is it's probably my favorite what if novel ever. Yeah, and the scene towards well, I guess it's one of the climaxes is when the agent finally gets an audience with Queen Victoria, and and he's um an agent of the crown, but hasn't been no one's been able to get into her, and she's the the bride of Vlad, and she's basically chained by her neck and on the floor in filth. Dracula's like come before me, and but you're not allowed to get too close in case you try to attack me. But he's actually there to assassinate Queen Victoria as a loyal servant of the crown because she should not have to live in that state. Yeah, and that, I mean that actually breaks Dracula's rule because he only rules by consort, not not in his own right. Yeah. She kills herself in the end. He oh, throws, she throws a silver dagger or something to yeah. her. Yeah, and she, and she kills herself. That yeah, he facilitates that. And I thought that was really interesting because it gave her back agency. And he was yeah, it was like he's doing this as a, as a loyal servant of Queen Victoria. He's there to free her, and that's what it took to free her. So I, I guess where I'm going with this is that the '90s, as you say, is a powerhouse of vampire fiction. But I, I feel like. Like they quickly go from the Lost Boys exploring what it means to be forever young and a certain amount of Gen X nihilism embedded in there all the way through that to Vampire the Masquerade, which honestly I, th- I think is actually a foundational text, even if, if uh, 1990s gaming seems a bit, might have seemed a bit niche at the time. It has definitely influenced pop culture Absolutely. moving forward. Mm. Um, and, and, and at that point, because we were the protagonists playing the vampires, kind of stopped being scary because we were the predators. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I, w- I was going to mention Vampire the Masquerade. Look, I played it a little bit, didn't enjoy it. As I've said, I don't enjoy playing vampires. I've GM'd it. My experience with modern vampire as a GM was terrible, but I didn't mind Vampire the Dark Ages. And that's because they were the terrible monsters. And they were hunted down by the church and, and villages with burning torches. And when I ran that, and uh, I think all you, both of you and Nick were in my games at different times for, for Dark Ages, it had that sense of dread that I feel was missing from the modern game. And yeah, so that, I just wanted to mention that because I feel that, and there was also like the equivalent of mage, you know, a sort of medieval mage game that became Mage the Ascension in the setting and stuff. I feel that the, the contemporary settings were too close. When you could look things up on the internet or use a mobile phone, people don't role play that very well. I think that space for vampires in like a, a truly modern setting in that post mobile phone setting is really difficult because there are not a lot of dark corners for things to lurk in or to not be, you know, kind of knowable, like um, that that connectivity and that kind of um, panopticon, that kind of, you know, everything being visible all the time really doesn't give them a lot of room 
to exist. Charlene Harris, who was the author of Midnight Texas that I mentioned, is also the author of The Southern Vampire Chronicles, which was made into the TV series True Blood. Now, I, I have mixed feelings, but I actually enjoy her books. Uh, to some extent. What I really enjoy is her settings. I think she's a great developer of settings and characters. I don't always like where the stories go, but the True Blood series I found really interesting. It's it's told all from the point of view of Suki. I know in terms of the TV show, a lot of people didn't like her. That's neither here nor there. But I found the series, the book series interesting because I found it very political in terms of, well, the vampires have, have created an artificial blood, they call True Blood, so they've come out of hiding. But the werewolves are still hidden and other creatures are still hidden. And as the series goes on, they're exposed or they decide to announce themselves and so on. But she also, it's set in Louisiana and she also incorporated real world events. So she incorporated Hurricane Katrina into it and the effect that had on the vampires because Louisiana was said had the biggest accord of vampires in terminology from Vampire the Masquerade, but it had the biggest accord of vampires in America. Hurricane Katrina hit, suddenly all these elder vampires are dead or missing and she incorporated that into the next book. And she actually, in the previous book, she actually wrote Hurricane Katrina hit just as she was finalizing the edits and she had a discussion with her editor if she should pull the book and rewrite it, but she thought she couldn't do it justice. So she put it into the next book and she apologized to her readers from Louisiana and New Orleans that she had to wait, but she wanted to do it justice for them. And I thought that's really interesting. She's incorporating real world politics in a way that's effective. In, in some ways, it sounds like it's Anna Dracula 2010. I think it was. I don't think the TV show came across that way. I think it was more of a, a, a cool soap opera. The first 20 minutes of the TV show were really good because they do present that setting, blood banks, um, vampire politicians, all of that. But yeah, it kind of gets into nitty gritty on the street in the village pretty yeah. quickly, right? And that becomes a soap opera. And, you know, Suki originally has one vampire. And the reason she likes vampires is she's a psychic and she just hears constant mental babble from people, but not vampires. They're silent they're to dead. her. Yeah, they're silent to her. So she has one vampire boyfriend called Bill, who was a Civil War uh, veteran and who was turned into a vampire on his way home from the war. And then she, later on, she hooks up with Eric Northman, who's literally. Eric Northman and plays by one of the Scars guards. Can't remember which one. They're ubiquitous. I really hated Eric as a character in the book. Really hated him as a character in the TV show. Don't care how hot everyone thought he was. I just found the character just so skin-crawlingly distasteful. Didn't want to see him as a protagonist, hero, love interest, whatever. Stop watching the show. But that's me. What was the, what was the, what was the horror angle in True Blood? It, there wasn't really. Uh, if they didn't get the the the. Sac- um, the fake blood, they could start feeding on humans. There were vampire factions who didn't believe in it. There were vampire factions who were trying to, now that they were out in public, were trying to take over the world. Yeah. So yeah. I think, I think Fred, like there wasn't because their society, right? They At the point that, yeah, that the vampire like is saying, the hey, they're like the Germans or they're just another group yeah. In, yeah. in the world. Kind of and that's the difference from the book, right? Because in the book, someone who is a psychic has value to all these supernatural creatures, but in a TV ensemble TV show, we're giving everyone equal time. And then I think there was one season where Anna Paquin actually had a baby. It was missing for half the season. So the main character wasn't even there. So it wasn't about her and her journey and her exploration of what it means. Mm. Yeah. So, and also the other thing was when the TV show came out, which I think was about 2010, it was like quite a few years after Hurricane Katrina, they skipped all that. They, they got rid of a lot of the nitty gritty politics I really enjoyed in the books and just did, as Dave said, high level soapy stuff. Yep. So, I mean, are the books horror? Or are they drama? I think they would be classified as paranormal. Yeah. Which is not – it's it's horror adjacent but not quite horror. Exactly. So that's that's what I'm getting at. Like it's the post-Twilight serious vampire story for adults, but 
it's or it might be the contemporary, but it's it's definitely not horror, right? I think I think the the vampire trope character left the horror genre behind somewhere in the mid nineties. There's a quote um, I saw of uh, Catherine Spooner, who's a professor of Gothic literature at Lancaster University. She's um, argued that, like, over a period of about 200 years, vampires have changed from, like, the grotty living corpses of folklore to witty, sexy super achievers. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's the completion of that kind of arc, right, is at the end they're like just, hey, you know, I'm just cooler and funnier and uh, just better at things than than the rest of you. Like I'm not even kind of scary or uh, necessarily – only scary when they need to be. They're looming and they have they flash their teeth. Mm. And I was just going to mention a couple of the other legends, which I mentioned earlier, and I apologise, but um, Dampier, however you say that, are Balkan legends of creatures resulting from a human and a vampire together. Uh, and there was obviously the Dracula legends from Eastern Europe and the Bathory legends from Eastern Europe, and I suspect that's part of why Eastern Europe was a hotbed of you know, activity. They had so many, not just folklore about these creatures, but they had named people. Mm. And the, I think, Zhangxi, I think it is, from China, which are the hopping vampires. And there's a great movie called Mr. Vampire about hopping vampires and the restless dead. So, yeah, it's like, it's obviously not just Western and I, I'm not in any way qualified to speak about other cultures, but I just wanted to mention that, you know, there's some other examples out there. I but- guess one more, that when you <laughs> mentioned that, one that comes to mind is a movie vampire that, that kind of, well, kind of vampire, it's definitely vampiric vibe and that is a Big Trouble in the China. Yes. Um, which, and, and there is a real kind of horror element there too. You know, the, the antagonist is you know, absolutely uh, supernatural and terrifying and, um, you know, controlling and, uh, and parasitic kind of well, direct. I want to oh, – one, one, another show from the early 2000s is – and this is just, I think, confirms our thesis – is Dante's Cove, which is <laughs> – it's basically full of models and porn actors – and it's like gay werewolves and vampires and that kind of thing, getting their clothes off all the time. But like, there's nothing scary about it. It's just, a, a, you know, a sausage fest and, and and everyone's jumping in bed with everyone else. And sometimes they have to get a bit furry or sometimes they have sharp teeth. And shout out to Emma, my former manager, who used to come to work each week and be very excited about what she just saw on Dante's Cove, which is how I know about it. But um, I just thought it was worth mentioning because that's sort of like, I think it was about mid 2000s and, and onwards. And that was just kind of like... Vampires have hit rock bottom. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess we haven't discussed Midnight Mass, which was Mike Flanagan's 2021 opus. That's in my... Vampires that are actually still scary category. That was definitely closer to um, to the more traditional vampire fare. The the actual hundred percent blood, you know, fully blooded vampire is largely unseen through throughout the film. It's mostly just shadows and and noises and implications. It I would does, say Nosferatu esque with bat wings. I mean, the if you seen. want to use your vampire the masquerade terminology, sure. Mas- Nosferatu <laughs> predates vampire masquerade by about six or. Uh, sure, but that, that was a character, not a category. I meant the bald head and everything. My, my, my point is that, yeah, it's much closer to horror because the vampire there is unknown and they spend a lot of time building a mystery and, 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 and tension around that. And I think Flanagan deliberately misleads you by using a certain number of um, uh, cinematic devices that he developed for the Haunting series with regards to the manifestations of guilt. Um, so he's actually he, he actually uh, misleads the audience for a few episodes, not point of pride or anything, but there are enough tropes to know by the end of, the, the say, the second episode that we were dealing with a vampire at that point. And the priest 
who like, I know he was drinking vampire blood, but I can't remember if he was actually a vampire himself. Essentially, yeah. um, was feeding vampire blood to the congregation and pretending they were getting healed through the faith of God. So that was really interesting. Yeah, I I, I think the religious uh, theming was was really interesting. I have, as a Reformed Catholic, I, I have thoughts about how uncatholic some of the priest behavior was uh, in that. Um, but but it made for a good story. Well, I guess I he was he was a vampire by the time No, but no. What I'm talking about is is he he becomes uh, his his style of preaching was much more Amer- American Protestant. Oh, um, I see. Yeah. Uh, that, than it was Catholic. I think there's something that's not hidden about that modern vampire from from Polidori on. Like Polidori's vampire is an English lord who's met as a traveling companion and hangs around with the protagonist. I was going to say Lord Ruthven, isn't it? Yeah, Lord Ruthven, yeah. And he is kind of, kind of traveling together and he's womanizing and, you know, there's weird things happening, but he is there and kind of a presence and then things go a bit weird and, you know, that he, he's, see, I think he's attacked Lord Ruthven, Lord Ruthven is like attacked and is dying and then makes the protagonist uh, swear that he won't say anything for a year and a day, which he agrees to. And then the next time he sees Lord Ruthven, he's in England and he's uh, romancing his sister. And so he's present and he's bound by his oath that he can't say anything about it. He can't tell anyone what's happened. And that is the, the horror part there is one that's kind of unfolding in plain sight. And the, the menace is present and visible in a way that's a bit different from like a concealed monster kind of thing. There's something right from that point on, which is, you know, um, more overt about a vampire than some of the other kind of paranormal creatures, I think. Yes, I agree. One night is one we didn't mention, which again, I'm not a fan, but. I know Dave is, is from dusk till dawn. <laughs> I don't know about a fan. Um, don't have anything to say really. It's just schlock. It's, it's grindhouse schlock horror. Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess it's part of the 90s vampire movies, but it's not a romantic protagonist. No, it definitely isn't. Well, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, uh, that's, that's uh, Rodriguez romanticizing violence. Is what it is. Mm. There was a series made, um, for, I think, for Netflix that didn't seem to go anywhere. I think we managed to sit through one episode. Yeah. Now, there's also, I want to mention it. I'm just trying to decide if I want to mention it now or later. No, I'm going to mention it now. So, towards the end of the 90s, I guess it's kind of an X Files esque kind of show. The BBC did an amazing production, six episodes, very underrated. It's called Ultraviolet. Can't recommend this highly enough. It's got basically an all-star cast, some of them before they were famous kind of stuff. Susanna Harker, Idris Elba, Jack Davenport, I think his name. It's basically uh, Stephen Moyer as well, who was later in True Blood. Uh, So it's basically two cops. The night before one of them is due to get married and the one who's about to get married didn't turn up at the wedding. And when the other cop like tracks him down and finds him, he finds that that he was turned into a vampire by choice, apparently. But the word vampire is never used in the entire show. And this gets back to that scientific approach that you mentioned, Fred, because he's basically recruited into a secret extra government organization that's within the police force or secret service. And there's a scientist who is Susanna, Susanna Harker, and there's a, a former soldier who's Idris Elba, and Philip Cost, who's the Australian, brilliant Australian actor who is a Catholic priest. And so, someone says to me at one point, oh, so you're the Inquisition. 
he just said, oh, the Catholic Church doesn't believe in good or evil anymore. We're a government organisation who's concerned about the public health implications, which I thought was fabulous. But they, their guns have little attachments on them with mirrors so that they can actually see if the, go- if the vampires have a reflection have a reflection they have bullets that have carbon tips which is a bit like a wooden stake they have grenades that have allicin gas which is uh in garlic so they are scientifically trying to just you know deal with this problem and there's a very interesting things happen in the and every every title has a latin phrase which you know Fred and I have bonded over things like that before but there's you know the final two episodes which is about what the vampire's plan is first of all it's you know there's a an artificial blood substitute and you find out why and then Colin Redgrave is an ancient vampire or a senior vampire who they managed to capture and start interrogating and finding out what they're up to and they're basically going to have a nuclear holocaust of blood out the sun they're going to live on the artificial blood and destroy humanity and pen them up to feed on. So, is this horror? I thought it was pretty scary. I think it was. I, I think it was positioned as horror in a different type of context. I it, look. It it comes up with challenging concepts. But are you? Do you? Did you feel threatened while you watched it? I did by some of the vampires, the stalking vampires who were abducting and killing people. Yes, you never found out their names. I found it a good watch, and I found it tense. It, to me, it was more a thriller than horror. It's definitely a thriller and certainly it's got police procedural elements in it, but I, I just thought it was really good mm. and certainly not as well known as it deserves to be. So we've talked a lot about, we've given a lot of examples over centuries um, of literature and we've we've sort of discussed, I think, why things, why vampires are no longer as scary as they used to be. And it's because they're too familiar and in fact, we have made we have become them and we have made them us by making them our protagonists and our anti-heroes. Why have we done that, I guess? Is it just the 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 way of literature to just keep remixing ideas until until they lose their original essence? Or is there like something else? Is like is there a an underlying psychological anxiety that has driven us to this point to make the vampire so familiar that it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I am not sure I have an answer to that generally. In terms of the romantic hero, I think I might have part of an answer. I think that it ties into the same trope as the too many dukes problem or the alpha asshole, usually a former soldier or paramilitary. It's the dominant alpha male of that genre. You can't get much more dominant than a vampire who can, with one look, make everyone do whatever that he commands. And in the new Twilight era ones, they don't even have the limitations of not being able to go out in daylight. But they're not partic- as powerful either. Right? Yeah, sure, but that's only a minor limitation compared to everything else they can do, right? Before, the old ones, they had to be back in the coffin or in their soil or whatever before first light of dawn. So they were physically limited in right. when they could do things. But by taking those limitations away, they're just the, the alpha asshole of their category. Yeah. So was that a deliberate appropriation or was it just somebody a fan of the horror genre looking for a way to to differentiate their work? So I can talk about Stephanie Myers, who's the author of Twilight and the sexual repression on every single page of her novels. She's a Mormon. She wrote a lot of her faith into her vampire stories 
and I haven't read all of them, so I can't really comment too much on all of that. But there's a lot of, I think those are a lot of escapism to get around the restrictions of her religion, but also tying a lot of the religion into it. Like the baby that the two main characters have in later books is imprinted in utero to the werewolf adult. <laughs> they know that he's going to marry her when she's old enough. Sure, but... I mean that's 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 simply enabled by by the supernatural trope, right? It is, but she was the first one to really have big success with the in popular fiction, wider fiction other than just, you know, gamers and stuff with what was going on and True Blood or the Southern Vampire Chronicles, what was happening in parallel. And they were popular books, but I don't think they had the same same impact as the Twilight books, certainly not the same target audience. True Blood really took off when the TV show came out. So I guess is Twilight's use of the vampire, I guess I don't understand why vampires and werewolves, why horror tropes, which are generally decried as evil witchcraft by what what one might broadly understand as Christian thought. It feels I can't answer that. Antithetical. And certainly, I mean, Dracula was literally an agent of evil. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I can't answer that. I mean, look, it, she didn't invent them as that because it was already happening, as we've said, through the World of Darkness games and through other stuff and the Buffy TV series predates it. And maybe she was inspired by the Buffy TV series. Who knows? So it was already happening. But, you know, with the vampires as a protagonist, I mean, interview the vampire. Let's start. Louis, whichever one you pick, the sooky one or the aggressive one. But in terms of going mainstream... Twilight, I think, was the the big one. I know, I, I get that. I'm, I'm just, I'm still driving out why. Like we can see with zombies that over time, zombies reflected um, changing, very clearly changing anxieties uh, in society. Right? Originally, it was it was inherently, it was it was fear of black, of of black slaves. Then you know, it sort of became communism then it became consumerism then it became ecological disaster ecological disaster so i think it's i'm finding it a lot harder to trace maybe because a vampire is actually a rational being so certainly by the time you get to the 19th century and our modern understanding of the vampire it is it is a human with certain animalistic supernatural drives but ultimately still a human with human motivation just you know enabled by more power yeah and look I, there's certainly different and i'm gonna say lineages of vampires there's the the blood-sucking vampires a la dracula but there's the psychic and emotional vampires which are kind of the descendants of camilla by sheridan le Fenu. and i mentioned there was one in midnight texas another one that well three actually in the book uh, is by dan simmons it's the book carrying comfort and it won, I think, a Hugo Award or a World Fantasy Award. I didn't like it at all. It was three terrible people as the protagonist characters who were hundreds of, over 100 years old. They were from South America, I think, but it's a long time since I read it. And they, every year they'd go on a, a vacation somewhere and they'd just suck the life energy off all the, the people in the hotel resort and uh, and just do terrible things. And I, I just, I don't want to read this. Uh, <laughs> so that's my first experience as, as vampire protagonists. But. What fascinated me is the following year, Dan Simmons wrote another book about vampires called Children of the Night, and I really enjoyed it. It was very different, and it was actually um, a scientist, a hematologist, I think, who was in Romania looking after the children in the orphanage after Ceausescu's fall, and she adopted one, and it's actually looking at vampirism as a blood disorder. And like, because I don't know if you know, but uh, Ceausescu had all the children in the orphanages because he 
he made women breed, um, being injected with blood every day and that kind of thing. So like he actually wrote a scientific story about that and how then she adopted like one of the descendants of Dracula inadvertently took him back to America and then the family were trying to get hold of him again. So I just thought it was a, like two completely different vampiric stories by the same author in a, you know, 12-month period. One of them I found unreadable and the other one I really loved. So yeah, just, uh, but the second one didn't have a vampire point of view character. So that made a big difference for me. So I guess, Fred, when you look back over the vampire texts that, that you have read or watched, uh, are there particular themes or tropes that you, that you prefer? I'm pondering, um, do you like vampire POVs? I'm sorry, do you like oh, vampire po- point of view? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I'm, I've never really found that, that very comfortable. Like they're, they're kind of despicable I agree. protagonists. They're doing, you know, monstrous things. And then, you know, the only way they try and make them likable is to have them try and, you know, be tortured about not doing uh, quite as monstrous things as they were otherwise going to do. So... Like as protagonists, yeah, I'm not really super into that. I think maybe you see something similar with, you know, books like The Silence of the Lambs and then trying to do a sequel to that and suddenly, you know, Hannibal Lecter has to be a slightly likable character or you get characters like your Dexters or your whatever where they're a kind of, you know, maybe they're more of the villain's you know, all anti-heroes in kind of another way where they're monstrous in a way still. They're still allowed to be monstrous to an extent compared to like um, like a romantic hero vampire. There's, I don't think we've got too many romantic hero serial killers uh, yet. Despite I don't know. Netflix's best efforts. Yeah, I think, I think if you check out the true crime <laughs> category, you'll, you'll find... You know, people like there are people obsessed. I mean, there are people obsessed. everywhere. I mean, it's the it's the uh, you know rule forty seven or whatever. But let's you know, sure, <laughs> it's not mainstream at least. Uh, I hope. Yeah, um, I agree. I'm I'm definitely over the the relatable villain or relatable antagonist. I think that I feel like it's definitely blurred um, moral lines a bit more than it should have been. I agree. I, I think you can see a struggle too with like you know Sony trying to get their. Uh, uh, spider-related characters yeah. going, like, you know, obviously Morbius the living vampire, to take yeah. a, a recent example. Where it's just a, it's an anta- it's a villain character, it's an antagonist character and trying to turn it into something which can kind of be, uh, kind of carry a, a film well, you know, that one obviously did famously poorly. but um, I wonder yeah. if part of this flip was because there were some vampire hunter films that failed. Like um, Van Helsing. Van Helsing and also Underworld. I thought you were about to say um, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. <laughs> well, there's that too. But, like, there was a bit of a spate of vampire hunter movies after the success of the 90s vampire movies, and none of them did very well. So I wonder if that kind of transitioned into, well, if these aren't going to do, and this could be a, a, a producer studio mm. kind of decision, well, if they're not going to work, let's go to the vampire as protagonist because the vamp the role-playing game is really popular yeah i i wonder if if the success of of uh blade uh featuring wesley snipes had something to do with that particular thing because he was you know a half vampire hunting down vampires and he was very cool and very effective at doing it um and that's i believe a marvel it is a character. marvel property yeah. Yeah. it is yeah um, but they haven't brought it back, and um, I they've think cast it. They're, they're making one, of course. Who do, do you know who they've cast as? Uh, I want to say it's Mia Sherla Ali. Is that what you say? 
Okay. Also, uh, really cool. Okay, cool. But I mean, there was also like characters. There was like a vampire in the monsters and things like that. So, <laughs> but like, I mean, there, there were vampire characters around that were not necessarily always scary. Like there were. Yeah, yeah. No, there was always like a jokey, a angle. jokey character. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. To to make reference to an to a, another episode, um, vampires are just buses, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they're buses. Yeah. Sometimes they're parasites. <laughs> um, it's it's just it's a trope. It's not a genre genre or a setting on its own it's you know sometimes it's just a, a blood-sucking human it's what you do with it that counts yeah now i want to talk about video games well well because we've talked about role-playing games so we talked about vampire the masquerade and the sequels vampire the requiem although we didn't really talk about ravenloft which is i guess different because it predates vampire the masquerade and there are vampires and they're they're not good guys but they're enemies you they're can't enemies. there's no there's no pc vampire class or anything but ravenloft is still a popular setting today i believe yeah um i guess i can't speak to modern ravenloft but um i, I did have the original box set and um you know the it was traditional D where you played good characters i believe they they released it for later editions of DD as well so oh, sure yeah. uh, not for third but it is it is available for fifth i know because yeah. someone that hi jocelyn someone that i play games with uh has a has a bit of a crush for um for for Strahd, yeah jocelyn jocelyn don't do that but yes computer games is and there's there's not a lot of them and i was talking to before that we started recording there's like a plot line in Baldur's Gate 2 shadows of arm about vampires there's a plot line in elder scrolls oblivion about a vampire prince but there's not a lot of vampire games and there's like the blood rain series and there's the castlevania series and there's the vampire masquerade series which i know fred has played and actually had recommended to me but that's about it and i wonder if it's just hard to play a blood-sucking vampire on a computer where you actually have to physically, like, drain people of blood. In, in first person, definitely it's it's problematic. During the last year, uh, I played a game called V Rising, which is essentially combination farmer exploration sim um, in which you are a vampire and you have to go out adventuring to get the resources to build a vampire castle. To and then have crops? Do you have yeah, crops? Well, well, yeah. I mean, like eventually. Vampire Dew Valley? What's the... Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of is. You end up... Uh, you, you know, you have Brain to gather materials and, and, and eventually once you have high enough power, you um, you can enthrall humans and you can put essentially start a blood bank in, in your basement. Oh, and that's just terrible. <laughs> it really is. Um, ultimately, uh, we, we gave up on it because it was designed as a PvP game. We ran a private service. So we didn't engage with the PvP, but um, eventually got a bit too grindy and the landscape the bosses on the landscape were really cheap one day nick and i will have a long rant about um really bad enemy design in games bullet sponges and uh are high amongst the the annoyances there I think, you know, that the, the, in a video game setting, if it's not an RPG, you lose the character beats, which are really yeah. a big part of whatever makes vampires, not just whatever collection of powers. And so, you know, lots of games are, you know, kind of have a power fantasy angle and, oh, you know, in this game you can fly, in this game you can change shape, in this game you can do, you know, smash down walls or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, while treating vampires as like a template of, you know, a bucket of powers is one thing, it's probably harder to, kind of have them as feeling distinct from other kinds of video game yeah. uh, protagonists, I suppose, and still retain something kind of unique about them if they're not, I think, know, yeah, I think you're right. in some other way. I never played 
Blood Rain, but it really, I mean, it kind of carried itself as, you know, Blade, but a chick. And I think it kind of just didn't carry it itself very well the story the story and the character were pretty thin and yeah i think i think vampires you're right fred um are a very narrative literary device and i don't you they probably don't carry well into games i think that uh, yeah and fred mentioned earlier to me that he had watched castlevania but i don't know if it it is, it is also a game i don't know how well, it would translate as a game. Well, Castlevania, yeah. it was a game. It's from the early Nintendo days. It's essentially half of a genre name now. It's an, a, a big gated exploration platforming. Well, sorry, side-scrolling genre. Right, okay. So it's not, not a modern game. Um, no, well... It, it's darling of it's a darling template for indies these days. Um, the Metroidvania. How, how did you like that that Netflix series, Fred? I don't think I'm, I don't think I might. Have, I don't think I've seen it. I actually, I'm not sure where that one's. I, I, I watched it um, and my first watch I I didn't I didn't mind it. It was interesting. It was very anime, very you know big words and uh, dramatic sounding concepts and full of lightning and thunder, <laughs> I guess. But but yeah, second watch I found I found the pacing really difficult um, and the power creep horrendous, which is often actually often a problem with anime. But the the vampires are bloodsuckers, but they're like the Dra- Dracula and that is also a tragic scientist wizard person thing. Um, and I, I, I think it indicates a certain amount of boredom with the straight up bloodsucker trope is that it's just not enough. What like it attempts to explore what happens when you live forever. What do you do um, as an educated aristocrat? who can live forever uh, and 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 that's why i say like he he is this really powerful wizard scientist and the story there is that he had fallen in love with a human woman who was like a village healer and you know who who talked him down and engaged with his scientific self but eventually she was um uh she was killed by other humans and he decides at that point that he's going to kill everybody and i'm what, yeah, I, I kind of got tired because all of a sudden he gathers like I don't know, 20 other vampires and there's all this poli- fa- vampire politics in his floating castle. Not enough action, too much talking. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's it's hard to find uh, much vampire fiction going on at the moment. Well, I was just looking up some when I remembered, but I couldn't remember his name. It's a Russian author called Sergei Lukyanenko, and I didn't say that right, and I apologise. Um, he has a series, and it's Night Watch, Daylight Watch, Twilight Watch, and it's set in it's an open fantasy set in Russia, and there's like vampires and stuff. And um, I remember being recommended it a lot on back in my days on the Song of Ice and Fire message board because you know once upon a time I used to read George R. R. Martin or wait for the next book to come out, but. Um, it's like apparently very, very gritty and very dark and it's not a paranormal vampire. It's a, an urban fantasy vampire and there's a difference in genre there. And, and they were made into movies, so I haven't seen them, but I thought it's worth mentioning. I don't know if either of you have, but um, I've been told that they are actually very quite dark and very good. But I was just thinking, and it's, I think the episode that Fred was on before, we talked about space vampires in our Megapoint episode, but 
like that's not the, I guess they're earlier, <laughs> you know, the, the psychic vampires in space who are leeching off everyone. Yes. Yeah. Like that hasn't hit the, the, the last 20 years of content, but there's not a lot of sci-fi vampires around, are there? Other than maybe the scientific one approach to vampirism that we've just touched on lightly. Yeah. That's pretty maybe, much Maybe it. the matrix is the, the biggest like machine vampire. Um, yeah. Maybe. But then the, the one game I, I really enjoyed playing a lot was uh, Games Workshops. Um, Fury of Dracula. Um, Love Fury of Dracula. Yes, which I was going to mention that. Game yes, where, that was a uni um, staple. And in fact, when the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula came out and they actually showed the trains going across Europe with maps behind them, it was actually like watching a, a, the Fury of Dracula board game and taking place. So I feel that someone in his production team had played it quite a bit. <laughs> but yeah, there you very much had the sense of, um, you know, the three of the players playing vampire hunters and, and seeking out seeking out Dracula and uh, clues for his whereabouts and uh, another player, uh, you know, with uh, playing Dracula and uh, with concealed moves and uh, leaving, you know, kind of traps and attempting to corner isolated hunters and, uh, and take them out. They had a, that real sense of, uh, I guess, tension and um, what was going to happen and uh, so on. It was uh, a yeah, fantastic game. And I do remember Jonathan Harker was an event card. <laughs> Actually, I was just thinking the genre that I come across vampires who are not necessarily main characters or they can be antagonists in is steampunk. There are, and it's not always Victorian steampunk, but there, there are often vampires in steampunk. I wonder why that is, apart from the obvious connection to the Victorian era. Is it because they represent some sort of like, not supernatural, but supernatural entity that the modern pseudoscientific thing can't interface with? Maybe, and the, the steam-powered whatevers can take out vampires often, but they, not a lot can stand up to a vampire, but steam technology can. Hmm. Right. Can you think of an example like of something that's... Yeah, I've actually been listening to an audio series called Gideon Smith by uh, David Barnett. So there's Gideon Smith and the Mechanical Girl, Gideon Smith and the Brass Dragon, and Gideon Smith and the Mask of the Ripper. And Elizabeth Bathory is one of the characters in that. She's not a point of view character, but she's uh, part of Gideon Smith's main party. Uh, There's also, uh, last episode we talked about Gail Carragher's book, The Heroine's Journey. She has a series called The Parasol Protectorate. They're all set in the same universe, and there are vampires very much part of that universe. Openly part of that universe. In fact, the British Empire was founded because vampires were on their side. Vampires and werewolves. In fact, the Coldstream Guard are um, a unit of werewolves fighting for the Empire. So one one that's smack in that genre is the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yes, yes. So that's. I just find it interesting that there's. A hi- there's a hybrid genre going on there with steampunk and paranormal as opposed to like the state straight steam fiction of Jules Verne or whatever and other earlier it's, it's a more modern take on it is the hybrid with the paranormal creatures and you know magic spellcasters and stuff as well and fae who can't interact with steam because of the iron involved so there's a whole lot of stuff going on in there and the vampires in these um, steampunk are often very very nasty creatures because there's technology that can stand up to them. I wonder if Anna Dracula was an influence there actually because um, it Dracula is not the only literary borrowing um, that Newman makes there. Like there's there's Fu Manchu and Sherlock Holmes and a few other. Even the Elephant Man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that sort of mishmash of, of um, fiction um, in that setting, I think, might, might might be an influence. And there's there's often a character who's very scientific and logical and and researching continually um, new experiments and new devices and and what does this do to vampiric blood. 
blood and what can vampiric blood heal and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. And they kill a lot more vampires in steampunk, in these steampunk books and they fight a lot more vampires and the vampires are a lot scarier than in a contemporary setting. Scarier or I mean, that, that alignment Both. is there right from the start. And again, you know, Polidori's vampire being, you know, born in from the same trip that um, Frankenstein was. Yes. Um, yep. So there's like a really close alignment to that kind of, uh, um, yes, an element of that sort of steampunk or, or you know, and, and that really also blends, you know, science and horror and so on in, in kind of a, a related way. In fact, it wasn't just from the same trip. It was from the same night of telling stories uh, in Lake Le Mans in Switzerland. Mary Shelley told her Frankenstein story and Polidori to- told his uh, vampire story. So that was a bit of a, an interesting trip for people to be on because uh, Byron and Shelley were also present for those who aren't aware. <laughs> and Keats right. was as well, wasn't he? Uh, no, he was in no. Italy by then. Uh, okay. Because he, 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 he Keats wrote a few um, a few things along those lines as well. Poems, um, yeah. So uh, do Coleridge. La Saint Agnes Eve, um, Lamia. and Lamia. Yeah. And yeah, Coleridge was writing stuff as well. So it was, there was very much a sort of, it's, it's the remnants of the Gothic, uh, which had been an, an 18th century trope that bled into the early 19th century. So you have some of the romantic authors like Coleridge and, and Keats and to, I guess to some extent Polidori and using some of those elements like the Lamia slash vampire. Yeah. Coleridge's one was called Christabel. Christabel, right. So where are vampires going now? I don't know. And that's part of why I was wanting to raise this as a discussion topic because I don't, I think that the only way they can go is back to scariness. Right. So, well, I mean, I mean, right now they're funny, right? That's what we do in the shadows is the big vampire <laughs> show. It's about vampires. It's, you know, and that's the most current thing. It is, and, it is quite ridiculous. Actually, and the, even is, is about it Disney or Pixar Hotel Transylvania okay. for kids, vampires for kids, you know? Sure. But yeah, that's in your classic monsters, Adam's family kind of. Sure. Um, yeah. it, and you know, We've, sure, yeah. we've also had the count for, for decades in Sesame Street. But so I, I think Midnight Mass might be a turning point. There's there's one film that I hadn't watched. Of course, it's a Nordic film, Let the Right One In, uh, or Don't Let the Right One In, I think. Uh, it's 2010, and it's about this um, socially distanced 12-year-old who makes friends with a, a young lady who turns out to be a vampire and obviously it's a very paced meditative character uh, piece apparently so I, th- I think there is definitely room to as you say go backwards midnight mass i think is a great first step on that journey i think so too yeah it's i i was reflecting preparing for this for for, for this recording that horror has has been has changed a lot even in the last 20 years and, and part of that's you know movie studios trying to you know changing what successful thing they're going to copy next we had found footage we had slasher flicks and zombies and i guess at the moment this the the elevated horror subgenre seems to obviously it, it comes with a very socially conscious approach but i think in terms of actual techniques they really focus on unknowable things like so you know get out for example like it talks about i i had a lot of trouble watching get out that's about people using black bodies to attain immortality there's there's midsummer and i think i think a lot of these sort of play on are playing on the bad things just out of reach that we just can only slightly 
touch the edge of. And vampires could sit in there in in that, you know, fairly well. Um, and I think Midnight Mass sort of starts to do that a little bit because there's there's essentially two stages of vampirism, right? There's the actual antediluvian vampire who's brought across by the priest, and then there's the priest and his get as well, who are like much more human adjacent. They're they're much more human. So yeah, I'm I'm curious to see where where vampires come come from after this one uh one that really feels vampiric in a sense was the Kilgrave character from jessica jones and that's you know the, the recent netflix series the psychic um mind controlling guy he's yeah he's yeah he's a mind controller who's a user and is more a metaphoric vampire <laughs> yeah but in terms of like the way he moves around uh, the you know, kind of the space and the kind of menace that he mm. presents and the impossibility of resisting yeah. uh, assault. Yeah, I didn't tell uh, that. And, the, That's good. And, the, and the tension of what's going to, you know, something, it's going to get worse, you know, who's going to get, you know, who's going to suffer from this next kind of thing. Well, they're making that, a know. new series. I think it's a TV series of Interview with a Vampire. Mm, which is why right. there's been a lot of articles about an interview with a vampire coming up. And that was where I came across this article and I mentioned and I found the quote, Claudia is conceptually and existentially terrifying, but also the ultimate vampire. Claudia never lived a human life, unlike Lestat and Louis, who experienced their childhood and adolescence as mortals. She only lived 10 years and considering her low economic status, the time period in which she lived and suffering through a plague, it was barely a life at all. She was born a human, but she was raised a vampire as Louis's daughter and Lestat's pupil. Louis and Lestat deal with their undeath in their own ways, one with melancholy and reluctance and the other with reckless bravado. Claudia has to deal with being a child forever, but she did not have to cope with the bloody side of vampirism. It's a game to her. Human life quickly becomes trivial and she all too comfortably settles into her role. Her brain developed without the moral dilemma of killing and it developed in an environment where she not only learned to hunt, but to manipulate those around her, using her innocence to bring people to her side. She may look small and it may torture her, but she's an apex predator. I thought that was a really interesting insight into Claudia because she is the most, I think, terrifying character in, in that mm. previous interview with the vampire movie. And it would be quite interesting in a series how that translates if she's still going to be the most terrifying character in a show when you see her week after week or if they're just going to play the cutesy familiar role with her. I could see it being a very difficult thing to write. I think so too. I think Kristen Dunst hit it out of the park as a 10-year-old. She was just superb Yeah, and held her own with very experienced actors. How do you – this is the problem with horror over a series, as I've said before. How do you maintain that sense of menace if if the audience is repeatedly – exposed to the same thing that's why it didn't work in uh it, you know with with the scream series and it became a thriller rather than a horror because after so many jump scares you either have to reveal or end or end i mean it depends how much of a person the antagonist is right i mean the, the fiction's full of you know antagonists who have a long life and can kind of maintain you know an antagonistic state oh sure um, but like the level of monstrosity and like it i guess I find that the, the human psyche becomes habituated to to a certain level of tension if uh, if it's left in a spot too long. It just stops being scary. It's background noise. And I think that's probably one reason, one of a number, that the TV show Kindred the Embrace didn't work because it was they were trying to – every single character was a vampire except I think it, someone who was playing a reporter. And they were also trying to explain – 
the background history of all the different types and clans of vampires to viewers who hadn't read the role-playing game, but, but they did it in like caricatures of what the vampires were. And they all hung out at Lily's Haven nightclub and it was just poorly written, but it was done by Aaron Spelling who did, you know, mm. Dynasty and Melrose Place and, and that kind of stuff. So he was trying to get, do a vampire soapy. And it just didn't work, which, I, which is interesting, really, in retrospect. It should have worked, but it just, they couldn't pull it off because they're not scary. And, they, and, the, and the stories and characters just weren't interesting enough to sustain it. I think if there is a future to it, it has to lean on the psychological horror because the kind of um, powerful villains are superhero villains now, right? They're, they're all powerful, right? And they have powers above and beyond like gods, not like, uh, you know, kind of a whole other sphere altogether. So I think the, the parts that need to be intimidating need to be more on the uh, personal stakes and individuals and um, uh, almost like on, almost at a smaller scale or or something, as you say, David, that's like kind of completely hidden that only emerges, you know, kind of late to understand, you know, how, how it's been influencing things all along, you know. Um, I think that's far more menacing. Yeah, absolutely. For me, that was the problem with the, with the Kilgrave arc in Jessica Jones, actually, is like the, the must manipulator should have been revealed very late. Um, they should have had a secondary villain for the first half of the, the absolutely. series. I, I agree. I think that, and, and look, they obviously had signed David Tennant and they wanted to use him, but they should have had what they did in um, Luke Cage. They should have had um, two villains, first half and second half, but they revealed Kilgrave far too soon. And I don't think he was that scary. I didn't, you were right, Fred, he was menacing, you know, but I don't think it was scary. And they're not always the same thing. For us, for the yeah, audience. For the, for the audience. Yeah, terrifying for, Terr- for. Yeah, terrifying for Jessica. But but for us, it's like, mm. oh man, is he still there? Can I, is that the yeah. spot I finished it? That, there was often two steps forward, two steps back with, yeah. uh, with Kilgrave. And mm. I just didn't find him interesting. You know, David Tennant chewing the scenery is something I've seen plenty of times before. Can we just move on, please? I know there's plenty of people who don't agree with me. That's okay. <laughs> don't come for me. <laughs> But yeah, I just find that a bit of a one note actor. Unless you're watching Blackpool, which is a musical set in Blackpool. <laughs> it's fabulous with a lot of lip syncing. There's another movie that's interesting. I don't know that I'm when you know having a look at some stuff for this for this podcast that I found out about. I haven't seen, but I, I love the director. It's a Jim Jarmusch film, Only Lovers Left Alive. It's a 2013 film. I don't know. Are either of you aware of that one? No, it's got Tilda Swinton. Yes, Tom yes, I was going to say it's like the Tilda Swinton one. Yes, yeah, John Hurt. Yeah, I'm keen to see that one. But yeah, that's um, you know has got two vampire protagonists as the kind of main characters. Um, I've heard, yeah, I haven't seen. It. I have heard of it. I don't seek out vampire movies because I generally don't enjoy them. But I do like Tilda Swinton, and I do think she takes interesting roles a lot of the time. So that's kind of on my oh maybe maybe I could do that one <laughs> list of of things to see. So one thing we didn't talk about. We haven't talked about that that we'll probably get crucified for if we don't is the fact that for a long period, vampires were treated as very sexual predators, not just like physical predators, but like there, there was a, an implication of, of, of uh, sexual violation that, that goes along with an encounter with a vampire. I, I uh, think right, so. right from Polidori. Right? Yeah. yeah. 
and I suspect, and certainly in all the movies, you know, with the women in diaphanous robes or whatever, look, I suspect that's partly why it has translated into these paranormal romances because there was that underlying um, idea with a lot of it already. Yeah. And it was so explicit. What was his name of the, um, the he was Lord Ruthven, right? That was the name of um, like uh, uh, one of Byron's lovers. Yes, he uh, was. Wrote a, a, a book which had, which would. Lady Caroline Lamb, I believe. Yes, wrote a book as with Byron thinly kind of represented as a as a character, Lord Ruthven. <laughs> uh, sorry, well, I, I don't think he was a lord, but he was another aristocrat. And um, so when Polidori made that the name of the vampire, he was absolutely making a, a caricature of Byron, uh, who was mad, bad, and dangerous to know, as she said. Yeah, um, one of the greatest quotes of all time. It's like a as, reference, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was absolutely the, that, that was a cornerstone of that, that new aristocratic um, vampire rather than the peasant, you know, kind of, you know, living in rags and, you know, dropping out of trees or yeah. what have you. And fiction as a genre was just starting to take off. I mean, you had Pamela, Joseph Andrews, that kind of stuff. And then you had Jane Austen and then you had things like Mary Shelley and, and Polidori. So, and they were in lending libraries and people would borrow them and, and read them out to their friends. So you might have someone narrating, reading the story, scaring people often because of literacy rates and things, often people wouldn't be able to read themselves. So their friends would read for them. That's kind of part of, part of that whole scenario, I think. And of course, gaslight if they were lucky, but probably candles if it's at night time. Yeah. Atmosphere. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But definitely a sexualized villain who ruins women kind of thing. Yeah. It's like absolutely yeah, foundational. So is that in our literary future for vampires? I don't think it's going to go away. Because, say, Midnight Mass had very little sexuality in it at all, right? One of the characters loses her unborn child as if it never existed, but there's no actual sex. Yeah. Um, I know. Riley's parents were pretty randy. <laughs> Recapturing that lost youth, but there was no, it wasn't that kind of ruiner of women thing going on there. No. I don't think we'll return to to that. The sexual anxieties around sexual violation, I think, are very different. Yeah. I mean, there may be still the menace, although I was thinking more the seducer is definitely still part of yeah. the character, I think. I don't see that going away. It's in books. Oh, look, and I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to mention it. So when I started going to writers' conferences and stuff and people were like, oh, you got to read your genre. And I'm like, mm, kind of looking at paranormal, not vampires, but I should probably read what's in the genre. And one of the big sellers. I, d- I didn't want to buy it. So I got some books from the library. It's just terrible. It's like one badly written sex scene after another with, and see the thing about a vampire protagonist means they can have multiple partners. They can just switch from one to the other, which you can't do in most romance. And it was just terrible. Like it was, I'm like, I can't believe people read this. It was so terribly written. It was just like, I'm an alpha male and I'm going to hunt her down and I'm going to have her. I'm like, wow, this is just gross. And it was like book, I don't know, five in a series that was ongoing or something with the same vampire main character over and over. I'm like, wow, that's just really obnoxious. And if it had been well written, I could at least have joined the, enjoyed the writing, but it wasn't well written. It was full of spelling mistakes and bad grammar and, and just really poorly constructed sentences and scenes. I'm like, this is just a trial. So I read two books by that author. I'm like, yeah, well, that's not happening again. And yep, stayed away from that subgenre of paranormal because I uh, didn't enjoy that at all. And I'd also read some Laurel K. Hamilton books. She has a series called Anita Blake Vampire Hunter, but like that's... Uh, 
first couple of books are okay, but later on she gets a vampire boyfriend and a werewolf boyfriend and she switches between one and the other, one and the other. I'm like, yeah, I don't really feel that that's enjoyable for me. And like as a vampire, like certainly Buffy had done the whole vampire hunter who's in love with a vampire thing previously. And it was uh, not not enjoyable to read. And that series hasn't been optioned for a TV show. So I guess people feel that that's not very good on screen, unlike True Blood and Twilight. Like true crime is so much or, or um or crime fiction covers that that kind of sexualized predator or charming yeah, uh, there's know, quite a bit. villain more so in today's kind of fiction. So I'm kind of mm. thinking of The Fall. I don't know if you've seen that series. Um, yes, I have. Which, like, again, that's very much has the handsome, you know, kind of charming or superficially charming kind of villain or, yeah. And obviously there's, re- there's recently there's a lot more, there's a Jeffrey Dahmer series going on. And, there was a Ted Bundy and, series or two. And they, it, they feel more like, more like that. They've got that predation and then, they, but they've got that, that kind of true life, either real, you know, it's real true life or um, fictionalized kind of reality around it. But yeah, it feels like we've got, seems like the kind of villains that we're more fixated on at the moment in, in that way. In, in Is it that like we have very knowable antagonists so we don't need to put a supernatural overlay on them? Yeah, I feel like the, yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like the supernatural part and the, the fantastical part is more in things like, you know, as I say, superhero stuff, which is, you know, ubiquitous and, you know, yeah, like the personal menace and all that kind of stuff is either smaller scale horror or or true crime, which has that, you know, that sheen of, oh, it could happen to me. You know, this stuff's just out of there and right around the corner and it's more real and personal than something, you know, that, that, that needs that kind of superstitious angle to make it feel personal in today's world. Yeah. I think that something that that was done in those 90s role-playing games was, you know, the particularly White Wolf was very good at this, the attempt to explain every bizarre thing in the world through the lens of their game, how many serial killers were some flavour of vampire in the, uh, you know, the masquerade setting. Mm. I think every vampire clan and a few mage factions claimed Rasputin, so yeah, that became a bit of an in-joke. Yeah. Well, I think that we have reached consensus on this, that vampires with a couple of exceptions are not a scary trope anymore. They have very much been defanged and we will put all our references in the show notes and I'll get that quote that Fred mentioned as well and put that, that article in the show notes. So for those who do like vampires and do think they're scary, please let us know if you uh, have any thoughts on that. I or think there's you, hope for them to come back. I do but. think there is hope. I think there's some signs of it. I think as Fred said, um, as what we do in Shadows is, you know, it, it does have a big menacing scary vampire in it. Um, at least the movie did. I haven't seen the TV show. And I, said that I preferred that the, movie, the movie set in New Zealand with a g- g- gang of vampires was pretty funny. But yeah, Midnight Mass I think is a good start and I'm I'm interested to see where the interview of the vampire series goes, but I'm not sure if it will be less scary because it is a series and it becomes familiar. Mm. So any final thoughts, guys? No, I, but I think things things come in, I won't say circles, but spirals, <laughs> um, like roller coasters, corkscrews, and one day the uh, commercial fixation with superheroes will fade and uh, we might be able to see a resurgence in um, more interesting blockbuster films 
blockbuster horror it would be really nice to see blockbuster horror again what about you friend no i mean i think yeah uh wait and see i mean it's all it it's down to the right creators isn't it, isn't it? that um can bring something fresh and new and and find the right moment to um to capture us and, and make it relevant for today so well that i'm putting a stake in the ground for more space vampires they don't have to be catholic space vampires but Ooh, i feel I that yeah yeah i feel that um i feel that doesn't have to be in space but but in terms of creatures from other worlds and other places that have to be our traditional um, folkloric type vampires i think that they can be other creatures that might find human blood and flesh quite interesting and i think like a first contact situation or exploration of other worlds and things that might be interesting and i think those stories haven't been told yet and they could be so yeah that's kind of where i was thinking that maybe we could go but that's not the same kind of story that could be my space opera i'm still waiting for that episode but yeah we'll get to space opera one day but yeah that's kind of what i was thinking we could uh put vampire type stories if we're moving away from paranormal romance and so that brings us to the end of this episode of pod culture oz thank you for joining us we hope you've enjoyed the discussion and our thoughts on modern defanged vampires we'd love to get your feedback so reach out to us on twitter where you'll find us at pod culture underscore oz and if you listen to the show on apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could leave us a review there as it will help other listeners to find us so that's a wrap on this episode. Once again, I'd like to thank Fred for joining us on the podcast. If you need me, I'll be in my coffin. Okay. And it's goodbye from my co-host. I do not drink. Fine. And until next time, it's goodbye from me. Bye.